Of the 270 Navy ships that served on the gun line during the Vietnam War, one was the battleship New Jersey. There were 10 cruisers, 208 destroyers, 50 destroyer escorts or DEs, and the inshore fire support ship Carronade. She was interesting because she looked like a little baby cruiser. She was designed along cruiser lines. She was only 240 feet long, powered by diesel engines, could only make a modest 15 knots. But her 10-foot draft enabled her to operate in relatively shallow waters. She was armed with one 5-inch 38 gun mount, eight rocket launchers, and two 40-millimeter anti-aircraft gun mounts. And this was ideally suited to give close-in fire support to troops ashore. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. This is Stephen Phillips. I have the deck and the con for today's podcast. Today, my guest is Commander David Brune, U.S. Navy retired. David Brune served 22 years on active duty and two in the Naval Reserve as both an enlisted man and as an officer between 1977 and 2001. He is a graduate of California State University, Chico, and has master's degrees from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School and U.S. Naval War College. During his career, David served aboard six ships, including command of the mine countermeasure ships USS Gladiator and USS Dextrous in the Persian Gulf. Ashore, he did two three-year tours in the Pentagon. During the first one, he was assigned to Secretary of the Navy and Chief of Naval Operations Staffs as a budget analyst and resource planner. His final assignment was to the Secretary of Defense Staff as an executive assistant to the senior executive at the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization in Washington, D.C. Following military service, David was a high school teacher and track coach for 10 years and remains an avid track and field fan. He lives in Northern California with his wife, Nancy, and his two grown sons, David and Michael. A prolific writer, David has authored over 20 books on naval history, one on shipboard engineering and one related to sports entitled Toe the Mark about competitive running in the 1970s. Today, we're going to talk about his book On the Gun Line. U.S. Navy and Royal Australian Navy warships off Vietnam, 1965 to 1973. David, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this podcast and for your interest in this book. David, you have a co-author. Please tell us about Senior Chief Richard Matthews. Rick and I served in the same division aboard the destroyer USS Leftwich when I was enlisted. Um, he was then a first class sonar technician and I was a second class. I had previously served aboard the fast frigate Miller on the East Coast. And when I reported aboard the Leftwich, I was probably one of the first non-plank owners or the first non-plank owner. Anyway, then first class Matthews and later uh, senior chief Rick Matthews was and I were kindred spirits. Um, he was intelligent, thoughtful. He had a deep interest in history. He later got an undergraduate degree in history and uh, loved the Navy. His father or his grandfather was a civil engineer in the Navy and helped to build the port of Mazalan, Mexico in the 1920s. His father served during World War II. Rick once told me an interesting story about his father. He was at Pearl Harbor and there were so many sailors killed as everybody knows that within his division, they lost storekeepers. He was a third at the time and he was asked if he thought he was ready to be a first class petty officer. And he said, of course, so he moved up and uh, he finished his service as a paymaster and storekeeper first. Rick joined the Navy in 1968 and was ordered to the destroyer Benner, which was in Vietnam. When him and I served together, he would occasionally talk about Vietnam, but I didn't know the, how extensive his service was until he provided me a bio for, uh, for On the Gun Line. Anyway, he, in addition to being a sonar tech, he served um, as a powderman in one of the five-inch gun mounts. So 
he was well familiar with the gunfire missions. Following the decommissioning of Benner, Matthews served aboard the Robeson and the Maddox. And later after the Vietnam War, he served on the McCloy in Norfolk, Virginia, and then three Spruance-class destroyers, Lefwich, Olgendorf, and Cushing. He retired from the Navy in 1992, and he first worked for the Department of Energy. And later, uh, his final civilian position was he was an online professor at the University of Phoenix, teaching, writing, and other courses. He had picked up a second undergraduate degree, and later after retiring, he also got a Master of Science from Boise State University. One of the a sad uh, note to this is a while back, I, I called him and left a message. I wanted to know about hedgehogs, which were on the, some of the early ships, ASW weapons that he served on. And I didn't get a response. And later his wife, Emma, called me and said, Dave, Rick passed away. Apparently he, um, he had a heart condition and he contacted COVID and went into the hospital and and didn't come out. So anyway, that was very sad for me. And one of the one of the nice things his wife told me was he was always very low-key about the book, but she told me that he was very proud of on the gun line. So that was a nice uh, finale to that. David, I'm sorry to hear about uh, that loss, about your loss. Please accept my condolences. I hope that those that read the book will remember Richard. Clearly, Matthew's service was part of the inspiration for the book. What else inspired you to write on the gun line? Well, when I was the engineer on the staff of Destroyer Squadron 13, I used to ride our squadron ships a lot doing workups for engineering exams. And I was chatting with one of the COs one day and he was he was sharing some experiences of having been on board a ship on the gun line as a as a junior officer. And it was pretty interesting. He was talking about a visit by Admiral John Buckley to the ship, presumably that was associated with InServe, and how Buckley wanted the ship to do an eight hour full power run, which engineers would hate. We don't like going beyond two hours. But anyway, um, he said that Admiral Buckley commented, you don't know explicitive about combat. And that comment probably followed um, some concern expressed about doing a uh, eight-hour time trial or full power one while you're in the in the gun zone, but anyway, or in the combat zone. But that was one of my inspirations, talking to some, like an officer that had been there. I appreciate that the book starts even before the Vietnam War begins for the U.S. Navy. Uh, you discussed World War II DEs converted to DERs. What is a DER? They were, they took World War II destroyers, DEs. Most of them were powered by diesel engines. They were relatively small ships, a few were steam. And they turned them into radar picket ships by adding radar to them. And the reason for that was it was a new role spurred by the onset of the Cold War. There was great concern about the possibility of being attacked by Soviet nuclear missiles or aircraft carrying weapons. And so they created what was called the Dew Line, which was a defense early warning line. And part of that was at sea and the DERs filled that role. The ones on the West Coast would leave Pearl Harbor and they would sail towards the Aleutians and they were, they were stationed at different places and their job was to act as basically a radar intercept station. And then you mentioned in the book with the advent of satellite surveillance, they started to become obsolete and they were assigned to Vietnam for Operation Market Time. What was Operation Market Time? Market Time was a massive combined U.S. Navy and South Vietnamese Navy effort to stop Viet Cong infiltration by sea of weapons and supplies into South Vietnam. It began in 1965. And the DERs were basically the, the surface vessels that were that were assigned to market time were not top of the line combatants. They were ships that were available to patrol large sectors. There were nine of them off the coast of Vietnam. 
and they did board and search procedures on junks and sampans. So among those ships were the DERs, there were ocean-going minesweepers and coastal minesweepers. Both of those were wooden-hulled ships. And they also later had some Coast Guard cutters and they had some Navy patrol gunboats. So those were primarily the uh, surface surveillance. They also flew P-3 maritime patrol aircraft on patrol either out of the Philippines or out of South Vietnam. And they also had an EC-121 early warning and radar surveillance aircraft flying at night. When I read this, I thought uh, patrol boats and the DERs made sense for the market time mission. Why were ocean-going minesweepers and coastal minesweepers assigned this role? Both ocean minesweepers and coastal minesweepers were used because they were available and they had good endurance. They had good on-station time. There was some sweeping done in the ocean as well as inshore Vietnam during the Vietnam War. But the minesweepers were used on patrol because they were good at doing board and intercept. They weren't frontline gunships. What they would do is they would patrol the area assigned. There were nine different patrol areas off the coast of Vietnam. And when they encountered suspect junks or sampans that might be smuggling arms or materials or men to South Vietnam, they would board and search them which they might send out their motor well boat with a boarding party, typically led by the executive officer, or they might call the suspect vessel alongside their port quarter, usually the starboard quarter. They had a 30 cal machine gun on the fan tail, and so they would cover it while it was alongside for self-protection. And that was pretty much what they did. They boarded and searched a lot of ships on patrol. One thing I will say though, it was extremely, the. The ocean minesweepers came from Long Beach, California, and being small wooden hull ships, it was a long slog across the Pacific. So they would, they would fight typhoons, and they would be in the combat zone on tours, and then they would slog their way home. The coastal minesweepers were coming from Sasebo, so their transit was a little less, but they were smaller ships, so they were more affected by the seas. Did the minesweepers see any action in Vietnam? Yes, they did. In fact, the last sea battle in the history of the U.S. Navy involving a wooden ship took place on the night of 22 November 1970 off the mouth of the Ku, Ku Ko Chin River. It involved the minesweeper Endurance and a steel-hulled North Vietnamese armed smuggler, a steel vessel that was much more heavily armed than the minesweeper. And that was an interesting account. A number of years ago, they had their first ever reunion and it was spurred by a signalman on board at the time who later became a judge. After his enlistment, he went to law school and became, a, actually he was a JAG and then he became a civilian judge. But in that battle, he was directing his spotlights on the deck of the steel hold ship that was very close, blinding their gunners and therefore protecting his shipmates. And they were shooting explosive rounds at him so that was very interesting. The, the steel hold vessel broke away uh, and hid itself in the fishing fleet. But as a result of that action, the commanding officer was awarded a silver star. There were other crew members that received bronze stars and everybody on board received combat action ribbons. And a painting of that sea battle is the cover art for volume one of my Wooden Ship and Iron Man trilogy of books. Which I have read and enjoyed. I hope uh, the seamen... The future judge, I hope he also got uh, a bronze star out of that action. Yeah, I don't recall if he did or not, but uh, he said that was the night he became a man. Yeah, I can imagine. You have a chapter on USS St. Paul. How is this ship unique, and what did St. Paul do on the gun line? She was, at the time, the only U.S. Navy surviving all-gun heavy cruiser. There were, other heavy, there were two other heavy cruisers there that had been converted to guided missile cruisers by having missile systems installed, which involved taking off some guns. But she was, she was originally one of 18 Baltimore-class heavy cruisers that was built during World War II. She came in late in the war in World War II and earned one battle star. During the Korean War, she earned 18. And interestingly, she fired the last naval saddle of the Korean War at 2159, on 27 July 1953, one minute before the armistice came into effect. 
So her her value and later the New Jersey was that they had her eight inch guns had much greater ranges than the five inch or three inch guns of the, the ships on the gun line. And so she had more reach for distant targets inland and she could also um, destroy fortified targets like bunkers that were pretty much impervious to lighter shells. You talk about other ships in the book. As an example, you give some detail about the story of USS Pueblo, which I suspect many people are at least somewhat familiar with. But another ship worth mentioning is USS Northampton. What was its mission? That was an interesting ship. She was laid down as a heavy cruiser. And while she was still in the builder's yard, her mission was changed and she was completed as a tactical command ship and commissioned in March of 1953. In 61, her mission was changed to National Emergency Command Post Afloat. And she carried out that mission until she was decommissioned in 1970. Essentially what she was, she was a floating White House for the president in the event of nuclear war. And the plan was they would, the, the president would be on board as well as some key members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the idea was that the Soviet Navy then did not have a strong enough Navy that they could find her at sea. So the idea that the president and other key people would be on board and she would cruise around off the East Coast in the fog and remain hidden. And ultimately, just like satellites put the DERs out of business, once the Soviets had satellites and they could find ships at sea, she was no longer viable. During her service, she never functioned as a floating White House, but she did host John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson from time to time. What was Operation Sea Dragon? Sea Dragon was, was an interesting operation. It, it started in 66 and it was carried out for a couple of years. It originally started as an operation to, to interdict uh, North Vietnamese vessels that were smuggling war material into South Vietnam. And they were called waterborne logistics craft. And although the Ho Chi Minh Trail is much more famous and well known for how supplies were moved from North Vietnam into South Vietnam through Laos and Cambodia, the uh, Tonkin Gulf was also important. So basically their mission destroyers were sent out and when they found waterborne uh, logistics craft, they would sink them with gunfire. Later on, Sea Dragon became offensive actions against shore targets in North Vietnam. In the chapter on Sea Dragon, you mentioned the Sumner and Gearing class destroyers and use a term that is mentioned throughout the book, FRAM, used to describe destroyers that have been modernized. What is a FRAM destroyer? Uh, that's an interesting term. It takes me back in time. In 1970s and later, ships that have been frammed were called fram cans by, by sailors. Fram stood for Fleet Rehabilitation and Modernization. And basically what they do did was they took World War II destroyers that were no longer viable against modern uh, Soviet warfare. And they removed their after gun mount typically and they gave them anti-submarine warfare systems. So for example, on the Gehring class, they gave them a dash, which was a remote controlled helicopter. Those didn't work very good. They tended to fly off and disappear over the horizon and not come back when they were commanded and run out of fuel and go into the ocean. They got the ASRock launcher, which was anti-submarine rocket. Those both carried torpedoes and nuclear depth charges. They got a new sonar, the SQS-23, and they got a variable depth sonar, and they got Mark 32 torpedo tubes. So that was the, the big part of the FRAM. FRAM-2 was a later upgrade that was done to Sumner-class ships. It was a little, it was a more modest upgrade. They got the DASH helicopter, the torpedo tubes, and the variable depth sonar, and retained all of their three twin five-inch gun mounts. So they had both forward and after gun mounts. You know, the Fram cans were, were beloved. Uh, when I was in Norfolk in the 70s, you'd walk down a pier and you occasionally see one of them in port. And on their ASRock launcher, which was amidships on the ship, 
they had a poster, the famous poster, if I was a man, I'd join, join the Navy in it. They changed the wording to be, if I were a man, I'd ride a fram. Yeah, that's so. pretty clever. I dig it. Someday I need to do a podcast on the sailor art. You know, I remember walking around the ship and certain divisions would have artwork on their door or squadrons would have artwork on their door. And it was always interesting and entertaining. And prideful. Yeah. One of the things that I connected with as I was reading the book is there were basically four roles or missions that surface ships conducted while in the Vietnam War. What were those four missions? The first one was Operation Market Time, which we've talked about. The second one was Operation Game Warden. And that began, began as using patrol craft, um, either swift boats or PBRs, river patrol craft, on the Long Tao River. The Long Tao runs from the South China Sea to Saigon. And Viet Cong wanted to interdict the merchant vessels that were carrying arms and munitions to Saigon. And as an aside, my father was a deck officer in the merchant marines and he sailed on those ammo ships. And when I was about 10 years old, he wrote me a letter that said the ship ahead of him going up the Long Tao had been, been struck by mines. Wow. And uh, they were turning around going back down the river. But anyway, it started off patrolling the Long Tao. And then it expanded to cover the entire Mekong Delta. And at the, its peak in 1968, there were five divisions of river patrol boats, PBRs, and they searched water traffic for contraband. They checked the papers of people they found aboard the vessels. And they evolved into somewhat a mobile strike force that attacked Viet Cong positions and river crossings. And people that served in the Navy are aware of that time, know how dangerous it was on the PBRs. They went, to, they went up canals that were so narrow you couldn't turn around. So they routinely faced ambushes on the river. The next operation was the Mobile Riverine Force, Task Force 117. Those were the amphibious forces that were working with the Army. Basically, what they did was they had assault craft that carried the Army troops or soldiers on missions. And then they had supporting vessels. Most of them were converted amphibious craft, heavily armed. And so they would, they would go out on missions and uh, deliver the deliver the troops and bring them back after the missions. In late 1968, Operation um, Market Time and Game Warden were co combined into an operation called Sea Lords, and that was an initiative of April Zumwalt, who was commander of Naval Forces Vietnam at that time. Final one was Operation Sea Dragon, which we talked a little bit about. That was interdicting sea lines of communications from north to south Vietnam, and also destroying land targets with gunfire support and while there were these major operations, there were some sub-operations also. Uh, what was Operation Bow Charger, and what was the impact of it, the impact of the battle itself? That was an amphibious and helicopter assault for a search and destroy mission in May of 1967. I wrote a book called Gators Offshore and Upriver, and part of that is about LSTs running the rivers in Vietnam. And the other is about the numerous amphibious landings that the Navy made in uh, North and South Vietnam, which very people, very few people are familiar with, but their assault landings basically evolved into, they, they used both assault craft and they also used helicopter assault. So in this particular one, it was a search and destroy mission in the Eastern area, the Southern half of the, of the DMZ, in an area being utilized by the enemy as a base for mounting attacks against Marine outposts along the southern boundary of the DMZ. And in order to have more firepower, the ships that were normally assigned were augmented with 11 Sea Dragon ships that joined the Amphibious Ready Group. And those ships included the uh, St. Paul, which we talked about, a heavy cruiser, the Boston, which was a heavy cruiser that had been converted to guided missile heavy cruiser, and there were also four destroyers. The combined firepower of these ships was the greatest concentration of naval gunfire since the Korean War. They were successful in knocking out enemy positions, but the operation identified the need for naval gunfire to reach further inland. And this realization resulted in the recommissioning of the battleship New Jersey in April of 1968. 
Well, David, I would like to talk about New Jersey in more detail later, but I realize that perhaps we need to share with the audience what happens during a gunfire mission. So if you would, please describe that. What is it to call a gunfire mission? You know, the whole process of, you know, a call or a directive, the response, spotting, adjustment. Unpack for the audience that whole fire control problem, please. Naval Gunfire Support, also called in the fleet NGFS for short, is also known as shore bombardment. They may be pre-planned missions where you have identified targets and you're going to go out and engage them, or they might result from calls from urgent support um, from friendly units. And typically, if they were calls from friendly units, they wanted you to engage the enemy that was very, very close to them and threatening them. Naval gunfire support is basically the, the use of naval artillery to provide fire support for amphibious assault operations and to support troops ashore within the range of the guns. Naval gunfire can be direct or indirect. When targets are visible from the ship, the ship lays its guns directly on the target. That's a gunnery phrase, but basically it means point at the target and conducts its own firing and spotting procedures. Spotting refers to as you have somebody that's using binoculars or sometimes they're in, a, in an aircraft, they're looking at where the rounds fall and then they're relaying that back to the ship that you're left or right or over or under. So the ship then makes the corrections to walk the rounds onto target. When targets aren't visible from the ship, then they need spotting that, are, that could be ground or air observation of the fall of shot. Ships can deliver accurate, effective fire and indirect targets to the use of ground or air observers. And there used to be, I don't know if they still have it, but they had a group called Force Anglico. And Force Anglico, I'll tell a quick aside here. When I was a junior officer and I was at Surface Warfare Officer School, first day we were there, we were all ensigns. Captain came in and said, if you fail this class, I can promise you the Navy will send you somewhere very, very hot or very, very cold and far, far away. And part of that was Force Anglico. Um, if you had problems there, you went to Force Anglico. And basically what they did was they were naval officers that used what was called a Comanche board. And it calculated, here's the ship firing, here's the target, here's me. And they would provide the requisite information to the ship to carry out its missions. Well, David, let me jump in and say, uh, this is where we have some things in common. I, it must be part of the curriculum. I had the very same announcement given to us on the first day at surface warfare school back in 1992. The other thing that he said, and I found this humorous, this is a classic SWO uh, statement. The officer said, also, I want you to remember this mantra. You never stand so tall as when you stand on the back of your fellow surface warfare officer. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay. I don't know if Anglico exists anymore or not. It definitely exists when I was in the fleet. I know that some of the folks that are in that role now are called JTACs, and I think Joint J stands for Joint, but there are certainly people that are performing that role if the name Anglico has been changed. But let's get back to the call for fire for this whole fire control loop, as it were, for gunfire support. Talk about the watch standing that would occur on the ships when they were on the gun line. Aboard the destroyers carrying out Sea Dragon missions, typically a third of the crew was at their battle stations with at least one gun mount fully manned, while the remainder of the crew ate, slept, performed their shipboard duties, and, and obviously stood the other watches. In Combat Information Center, radarmen kept constant vigil over the surface and air search radars while receiving collaborating in contact reports from surveillance aircraft and other ships. When a target was identified, the ship's commanding officer normally ordered general quarters set and gave permission to fire. The gunfire direction officer, sometimes aided by spotter aircraft, would then walk the initial rounds onto the target, then order all mounts, both guns, two salvos. The resultant boom, boom, boom of rapid fire signaled round after round a five-inch hurtling towards an enemy vessel or shore target. The commanding officers might deviate from this pattern if they were far enough from the hostile shore that that uh, North Vietnamese artillery couldn't reach them. In those cases, the commanding officer might engage the target with a ready mount and forego the call to general quarters to around to allow the crew 
additional rest. Within range of shore guns, the destroyer would turn seaward as soon as action was completed and move rapidly away from the now alerted enemy forces. I remembered reading about that scheme several times in the book, and I found that interesting. You know, they would turn, and especially if they had a mount on the fantail, that would allow them to respond if they were there was any returning fire. In the book, in on the, on the gun line, I also learned for the first time that the North Vietnamese employed a Soviet MI4 Hound helicopter and that it attacked two PCFs. Would you share that story? Yeah, PCF it was, a, it was a designation of what were called swift boats, which most people are familiar with. Out, familiar with. Throughout the spring of 1968, the Marine Corps and other observers kept reporting, reported seeing hovering lights at night just north of the DMZ out over the water between North Vietnam and Tiger Island, which was held by the enemy. They presumed the lights were to be those of helicopter, but daylight reconnaissance could find no trace of helicopters in the vicinity of the, of the DMZ or near the island. On 16 June, the Coast Guard cutter Point Doom witnessed the swift boat PCF-19 being hit in early morning darkness by two rockets from an identified source, and they pulled two badly wounded survivors from the water. Gunner's mate Andereg would later be awarded a silver star for saving his captain, Lieutenant J.G. John Davis, who was blinded, and for trying to save quartermaster second Bowman. Bowman apparently died in the water. His body was never found. Point Doom then proceeded to Cuviet with the survivors. She returned to the area several hours later and also came under fire from an unidentified aircraft. A second swift boat, PCF-12, in responding to the attack on the 19 boat, also reported being fired on by a helicopter, which was later identified as matching the characteristics of a MI-4 Hound, a Soviet helicopter fitted with machine gun and rocket pods. While searching for the survivors, PCF-12 was illuminated by four amber-colored illumination rounds directly overhead, making visible two aircraft hovering off her port and starboard beams. As the swift boat turned to place the helicopters on her bow and stern, thereby minimizing her cross-section and her vulnerability if attacked, one of the helicopters opened fire with machine gun tracer rounds. In the running gun battle that followed, PCS-12 returned fire with her 50 cal machine guns and radio that she was under attack by unidentified aircraft. Her gunners reported hitting one helicopter and hearing it splash in the water, at which point the other helicopter broke contact. Point Doom returned from Cuviet and PCS-12 observed her firing tracer rounds at blinking lights in the vicinity. At daylight, Navy divers from the ocean minesweeper Acme began a survey on the wreck and recovered three bodies, two American and one South Vietnamese. Years later, in 2001, a third U.S. body was recovered on another dive. The sunken swift boat had two entry holes in her forward berthing compartment, no exit ones, consistent with being hit by two rockets. Fascinating story. Another time to reflect on um, sailors that made the ultimate sacrifice. Throughout the book, you share quotes and musings from sailors that served on the gun line, and some reflect that while their duty was uncomfortable and arduous, they recognized they were safer than the Marines that they supported ashore. Still, it was not without risk, as we just heard from the MI4 Hound attacks. These ships were often fired upon and sailors did make the ultimate sacrifice. I'll ask you to share another one, the story of USS DuPont. The DuPont was on the gun line beginning in August 1967, supporting the Marines fighting in the DMZ. Under constant threat from communist shore batteries, her gunners shelled enemy positions day and night. On the 28th of August, the enemy guns fired on the destroyer Robeson operating between the DuPont and the beach. As Robeson maneuvered to seaward, DuPont commenced counter-battery fire, immediately replacing the other destroyer as a target for the enemy gun mounts. And these gun mounts were 130 millimeter uh, artillery pieces, so they were, they were good-sized guns. One round hit the barrel of Mount 52 aboard the DuPont, 
exploded and sent shrapnel down into the mountain, threw it into the after deck house, killing Fireman Frank Ballant and wounding eight others. In addition to the mountain being knocked out of condition, her deck house was essentially destroyed as well. Despite the casualties to crew and ship, DuPont remained on station supporting the Marines for another two weeks before going to Subic Bay for repair of enemy inflicted damage. She returned to the gun line on 10 October 1967. On 10 November, the eight men wounded in the previous attack received Purple Hearts. Following her 75 days in combat, she had fired 20,000 rounds from her five inch guns. Returning to Norfolk in January 1968, the DuPont went into dry dock for remaining needed work. Again, I do find that is a fascinating story. Um, always sad to hear about the loss of a sailor, but important to think about it from a naval historical perspective. As I had said earlier when talking about the Northampton, I enjoyed you had several stories in the book uh, on a variety of unique ships that you discuss. Talk about the USS Carronade. The Carronade was pretty interesting. She was a one-of-a-kind ship designed and developed to fire rockets at close inshore targets. Of the 270 Navy ships that served on the gun line during the Vietnam War, one was the battleship New Jersey. There were 10 cruisers, 208 destroyers, 50 destroyer escorts or DEs, and the inshore fire support ship Carronade. She was interesting because she looked like a little baby cruiser. She was designed along cruiser lines. She was only 240 feet long, powered by diesel engines, could only make a modest 15 knots. But her 10-foot draft enabled her to operate in relatively shallow waters. She was armed with one 5-inch 38 gun mount, eight rocket launchers, and two 40-millimeter anti-aircraft gun mounts and thus was ideally suited to give close-in fire support to troops ashore. From near shore inshore water, she could fire her five-inch rockets at tremendous speed, giving her firepower almost equivalent to that of a cruiser. Aided by a computer fire control system, she could put out a shotgun barrage of rocket fire. She also worked with, she was sort of the, the squadron ship of other rocket-equipped landing craft which was basically a concept that was developed and used in World War II. But she is the final ship of the 270. And I make the point in the book that other ships could claim that they were also amongst the 270 ships on the gun line. Those were little, little vessels when shores, when troops ashore needed help, they didn't care who came. So occasionally there was other vessels that were really gunfire vessels, but had weapons that would, would come and answer that those calls for help. Yeah, indeed. I can imagine they didn't care who, who was responding, at least that somebody, somebody showed up to help. Some of the Sea Dragon missions focused on interdicting North Vietnamese supply line choke points. One example is relayed in Chapter 16, discussing operations conducted by USS Epperson and Mansfield in March of 1968. Can you describe uh, this engagement? Yeah, that engagement was kind of typical, and that engagement, the painting of that engagement by Richard DeRosset is the cover art for On the Gun Line. It was interesting. I was talking to him. He had served on the Epperson in Vietnam, although not during this period. And I, I told him, I said, given that you could do a painting of whatever you want for this book, you know, you might want to do the Epperson. So um, anyway, the way this operation went, and I'll, I'll back up a little bit. In order to do these operations against shore targets in North Vietnam, you had to have an after gun mount. So I talk about Captain Steve Saunier. He was kind enough to write one of the forwards for the book. He was, when I was on Desron 13 staff, he was the Commodore and he'd served in, in Vietnam. He was operations officer aboard the Parsons. And the Parsons was a former Forrest Sherman class destroyer that had been converted to a guided missile destroyer. So she lost, lost her after gun mount. And he made the point that despite the fact that she had a 3D radar, a missile system, and was the power, proud, powerful Parsons flagship of the squadron, they never did any sea drag missions because they didn't have an after gun mount. So basically the way these, these missions went was there would be two destroyers 
the lead destroyer would be given the, the primary targets. The second destroyer would be usually off its port quarter because they would come in from the south. They'd be coming in from sea, but they'd be down towards the southern part of North Vietnam. So they would come in at high speed with the, the second destroyer on the port quarter of the lead destroyer. And when they got to the coast, they would make a turn, 90 degree turn to starboard, then they'd be in a column, which would allow both ships to engage targets with all their guns from off their beam. So the lead ship, in this case, the Epperson, would take the targets assigned, and the second ship would take, would do counter battery fire. They would fire back at enemy, enemy guns that were firing at them. Once they'd completed their firing run along the coast, they would make another 90 degree turn to starboard, and they would race seaward as fast as they could go. And while they were doing that, they would be zigzagging. On this particular mission, after making the second starboard turn and racing to sea, both ships were making flank speed and zigzagging to avoid enemy shore fire when a shell hit the water close off Epperson's starboard bell. Following the first splash, her after gun mount and that of the Mansfield began pouring rounds back along the enemy's firing bearing. Mansfield and Epperson emerged from the volley unharmed with no casualties, but there was shrapnel on Epperson's signal bridge. So that kind of gives an indication of the danger they faced. They, it was not unusual that before they finished their firing run or while they were racing seaward, they were taking fire from enemy, enemy positions. I said that we were going to talk about New Jersey again in more detail. I suspect that, like me, many sailors have a romantic vision of the Iowa-class battleships. So USS New Jersey was brought out of mothballs to serve on the gun line in Vietnam. Why was she brought back into service? She was brought out of mothballs during her long service to the Navy a number of times. Um, and each time it was because of the the awesome fire support she could give to troops ashore. She was originally commissioned in May of 1943 and saw combat in World War II. After the war, she was decommissioned in, in June of 1948 and laid up in red lead row, so-called the, the paint on the hull of a ship, um, in a reserve fleet. A little more two years later, she was recommissioned in November of 1950 for Korea, the Korean War. So once again, the Marines wanted her back. She was decommissioned a second time in August of 57, and once again forgotten until another war prompted her return to service in April of 68. The Marines love battleships because of the destruction they can serve up against enemy targets, particularly distant, hardened ones, well beyond the range of the guns of any other type of ship. And I don't know if you, you were in the Navy then, but John Lehman, Secretary of the Navy, later brought four battleships back. Same reason. The Marines loved them. Yeah. And again, I have a special place in my heart for those ships. I have been on Wisconsin, which is now a museum. I've been on Missouri, which is now a museum. And I know that New Jersey's in Camden, New Jersey, I think. I need to go up and visit her and, and see that. They're just, they're, they're fabulous ships. So what did New Jersey do in Vietnam? She did whatever was asked of her, but I'm going to read a paragraph from uh, On the Gun Line that nicely illustrates just three, three days of her significant contributions. New Jersey continued to move up the coast of North Vietnam. On 12 October 1968, she used A-7 attack aircraft from the Carrier America to spot her fire against heavily fortified caves at Vinh. The battleship fired at the caves on the following two days as well, and during the afternoon of 14 October at coastal artillery pieces on the island off Han Mat. During the latter mission, the airborne spotter reported a secondary explosion and the destruction of artillery piece, then explained, you've blown away a large slice of the island. It's down in the ocean. I remember so that, reading that's, that. that. That sort of says it all. Yeah. And I, remember, I remember being told that the battleships you know, instead of just lobbing rounds over coastal ranges, they could fire through the tops of them to get to enemy. I mean, these were not high mountains on, right. on the coast of Vietnam, but they could fire through the tops of them to engage enemy troops. So again, the Marines love battleships. Yeah, indeed. 
So there was a period of the war called Vietnamization when everything was being turned over to the South Vietnamese. But after Vietnamization, the U.S. Navy still had ships on the gun line. How did they respond to the North Vietnam's Easter offensive in early April 1972? Well, to set the stage for this, in March of 72, the relatively calm state of the South Vietnamese countryside seemed to vindicate President Nixon's Vietnamization policy, which was the withdrawal of U.S. ground combat troops from the country while they were trying to ensure that the uh, the armed forces of South Vietnam were, were adequate to fulfill the role of the, the, the forces that were leaving. This law in warfare, in warfare, however, was illusionary. The Easter offense was mounted by the North Vietnamese Army on 30 March 1972, led by Soviet-built tanks moving across the DMZ into South Vietnam's Quang Tri province. And it was the first major assault since the Tet Offensive in January 68. The difference between the Tet 68 and Easter 72 offenses was that in 1968, the United States had been escalating its operations, whereas in 72, the military action was phasing down and the North Vietnamese knew it. So we were withdrawing our troops and they knew it. Most of the major U.S. ground forces already left Vietnam. President Nixon had just made his historic visit to Peking, and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger was in Paris negotiating with the North Vietnamese for an end to the Vietnam War. As the, the Easter offense was launched, South Vietnamese artillery posts fell like dominoes during the first 48 hours of the attack, and heavy cloud cover grounded most tactical air leaving naval gunfire support the only reliable source of supporting our arms along the highway leading to Quang Tri City. U.S. Marine gunfire observers flying with the Air Force directed naval gunfire by the Buchanan, Joseph Strauss, Waddell, and Hamner. Those were all destroyers. These destroyers under Captain Theodore Johnson Jr., Commander Destroyer Squadron 31, hurled gun rounds day and night at North Vietnamese targets moving anywhere in the coastal region around the town of Do Hong. The enemy advance was stopped by the brave action of an Army and Marine Corps officer in blowing the Dong Hong Bridge with explosives and the actions of the destroyers. With their armored thrusts thwarted at Don Hong and Ku Viet areas, the North Vietnamese Army attempted a crossing at the Camlo Bridge to the west. The destroyers squelched enemy movement all night long as hundreds of gun projectiles were called in upon the enemy. Although the battle for Dong Hong was still in doubt, the communist armored assault had been halted on Eastern Sunday by the efforts of a few good men. For that actions that day, Captain Ripley was awarded the Navy Cross and Major Smoke the Silver Star Medal. Those were the Army and Marine Corps officers that blew the bridge. And we don't have adequate time to go into all the details associated with their heroics and blowing that bridge, but it's quite remarkable. Yeah, I am familiar with that story. I remember as a midshipman reading the book, The Bridge at Dong Ha, which covers uh, Captain Ripley's actions. He retired as Colonel Ripley, and sadly he's now passed away, but he is memorialized in Memorial Hall at the Naval Academy. There's a diorama as you ascend the steps on the left-hand side. There's a painting of him as a colonel and um, uh, a diorama depicting his action in laying the charges on the Dong Ha Bridge. Amazing. David, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've really enjoyed the book, but let's talk about you. what's your next project. Well, I have a, a number that are in, in progress. I wrote a book called Queenstown Bound, which is going through final editing before I pass it to my publisher. It's about the 70-some six destroyers that served in European waters in World War I. It's pretty interesting. I think people will find that book very, very interesting. I'm also nearing completion of a subsequent book called Intercept, which is about the Navy's former intelligence gathering ships. There were uh, 11 of them in the 1960s, which many, many people are aware of. There was also a fleet tug that served as an intelligence gathering ship that people aren't aware of. And then the Navy got rid of all its intelligence gathering ships in 1969 and found itself two decades later in the need of another one. And they brought the, they brought the Sphinx out of mothballs to serve in the 
from mid 1980s through the latter part of 1980s off Nicaragua. She had been laid down as an LST in World War II and, and was converted in the yards to a landing craft repair ship. So that was kind of interesting. And that book, I just finished actually and passed that to my editor. And I'm starting a book that's called, is going to be called Warbound from Stockton about the vessels that were built in Stockton, California in World War II. And that's pretty interesting. I don't know if you served in California, but when people think of the major ports on the West Coast, Stockton isn't one of them. And that's become, if you look at a map of California, it's about halfway from the Pacific to the Nevada border. You have to proceed through the San Francisco Bay, through cut channels in a delta, and then go up a river to get to Stockton. But she produced a number of, um, she had nine shipyards producing vessels for the Navy and the uh, Army in World War II. So I'm starting work on that book. The Stockton Maritime Museum is centered around the ex-USS Lucid. The Lucid was an ocean-going minesweeper after the Vietnam War. She was demilitarized and sold to a scrapper. And decades later, um, there was a group of individuals that were interested in obtaining a ocean minesweeper. And she eventually ended up in Stockton and she's been birthed alongside a vocational high school and they've been restoring her. And she may be moved downtown to prime real estate this month. And recently, um, the Stockton Maritime Museum has had a building donated to them that was the lofting building for one of the shipyards. And it's going to be moved down next to the ship. And as an aside, they have purchased 10 or 11 paintings from Richard de Rossett, most of which associate with Mayan warfare that were cover art for my books. So like, anyway, stock, I dig they're, it. They're, they're quite excited about this book. Yeah, indeed. I dig it. I will, uh, I always love hearing about when a ship is brought to life, restored, maintained, and becomes a museum. I'm especially happy to hear that that's occurring with a minesweeper. I think I did encounter something about that online. I will look forward to reading all of these books. I think especially about the ship that became an intelligence collection asset in Nicaragua. We always have to talk about uh, social connections or online connections. So folks want to read your books. I'm going to guess they can find them in all of the places where you find books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the like. But how can listeners connect with you directly? Regarding my books, you're correct. My books can be obtained online from Heritage Books, Barnes & Noble, or Amazon. And they can either get a hold of me via email my email address is Commander Bruin, Commander spelled out B-R-U-H-N at gmail.com. Or if they want to review my work, they can go to my author's website, which is www.davidbruin.com. And I'll put both of those in the show notes. David, thank you for joining no me today on to Preble Hall to discuss naval gunfire support in Vietnam economy. and your book, On the Gun Line. Thank you, Stephen, and I appreciate uh, your interest in this book, and I've enjoyed our conversation.